before we dive into Philippians this week, as we continue uh, in the book of Philippians in our Gospel Humility series, uh, I'd love for us to just take the opportunity uh, and pray together uh, for, for brothers and sisters uh, in pain. Uh, and such is the Christian life, uh, that this joy, this incredible thing that we're going to all get to take part in, the setup that's taking place, and the excitement of all of these kids coming in, uh, man, a really, really exciting and a happy time uh, mixes with painful times. Uh, if you're aware, uh, and I would imagine that most of you are, um, brothers and sisters in Christ and, and neighbors to us in Vestavia experienced a, a harrowing event uh, this week uh, as members of their congregation and believers uh, were killed um, during a, a church get-together on Thursday evening. Um, really deeply painful uh, to, to come to the understanding that one such person uh, was really related to a close friend of mine. Uh, and, and has Chelsea ties. And so, look, um, we, we experience tragedy and see and hear of this uh, quite constantly. Uh, but but this, is, this is unique in that it's so close. Uh, so I, I think this morning, uh, in, the, in the midst of the, the exciting things that we're experiencing, um, let's do what the Scriptures teach us to do, that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Uh, Let's take the opportunity to pray for brothers and sisters in the faith, uh, particularly in our community or down the road in Vestavia, uh, that the Lord would bring healing uh, and restoration uh, to these people and to their congregation. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, it it is easy for us to confess and understand Um, that we don't understand these things. Um, That the the enemy, God, would try to attack. Um, Father seems perhaps common or or, or normal to our mind, but in this way, with this degree of evil, with this degree of pain, um, Father, we're left with unanswered questions. And yet, God, you invite us to, in the mystery of our trust in you, God, rest in the fact that despite these things, that you are working all things to the good. That you are bringing your kingdom to continually grow. God, that the gospel is going forth. And Father, I just pray for... for not only those who serve ministerially at St. Stephen's, but for that body of people, that their resilience, that their unity would be a picture to the world of their great hope in you. Father, I pray that you would bring comfort, deep comfort and the recognition of the peace that you have accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ, to the families in mourning. God, would we be present and aware of the needs of others. God, constantly not looking to our own interest so that when we see brothers and sisters in pain, Father, we can offer consolation through our presence as we yield to and are open to the very power of your spirit that lives and works within us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. Philippians 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 this week. Today, really looking at an opportunity for practical gospel humility. We've been in this series in Philippians called Gospel Humility and seen the thread that is woven throughout this text, this letter that Paul writes to this very faithful church, this group of believers that he loves, that he has a close relationship with. 
and he longs for them to be instructed, to be grown, to be matured in their faith. And one of the great things that emerges from this text is the reality that to live the Christian life of maturity, one must be humble. So all of these theological profound things precede what Paul writes in this portion, these very practical things. You go back all the way into chapter 1 and you get a very clear picture of the work that is happening in Christ. He asks them to cling to the future hope that's in Christ. He describes these believers, these folks he's writing to as one that he de- ones that he dearly loves people that he longs for, that he cares for. We're going to see that emerge in the text today. But his goal, his, his desire is to help these people understand the gravity of grace that is found in Jesus Christ. The reality of Christ not only taking on flesh, but in the midst of taking on flesh, taking on something even more, the very form of a servant, humbling himself even to death, death on a cross. That incredible provision, that provision to which that place and that action that Abraham experienced with Isaac, that gyra moment, it points to this moment of fullness, full provision in Jesus Christ, in his life and his death and his resurrection. And in all of the theology and all the teaching that we find in Philippians, specifically in chapter 3, we're, we're encountered with this recognition of the fact that righteousness, the righteousness that we have does not come from our own works. Instead, it is all through Christ. In fact, it is him, Paul would say, he is our righteousness. And we come to the understanding of what ultimately real maturity is for the believer. So Paul writes to these citizens in a Roman world where maturity... And the idea of being of social status and having a place and a, and a, and a spot in the social order is so desirous. It's, it's what this empire, this culture is built around. It's identity and being a part of something bigger or more. Paul says that maturity does not look like becoming more. It actually looks like being perceived as less. In chapter 3, he would describe maturity in this way, that it's not being further down the road, and it's not about what we've attained, but instead living in humility in this way, that Christ has made us his own. That Christ has obtained us. That Christ has pursued us. That all of our identity, all of our life, is not found in how we're perceived to the world around us, but instead... That we have truly the opportunity to recognize that we are in Christ. And that this is where our identity comes from. And now, Paul, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and working through verse 9, he's going to wrap up what he said in chapter 3 and give a, a big, big picture in a number of ways as to what it looks like to practically live out the humility of the gospel. So if you will, read with me. This is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. It says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. So Paul teaches in this passage how to live as mature Christians through practical gospel humility. Look at the opportunities for humility that emerge in this text, not just for the believers at Philippi, but for you and I. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says this. He uses this language, and he says, stand firm. So one of the things that Paul is saying is he kind of wraps up chapter 3 and really in some ways puts a bookend on all of these grand theological statements He's reminding them of the main point, the main thesis, the reason for which he's writing. It goes all the way back to what he said in chapter 1 and verse 27. And he says that this would be the only thing, the main thing. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is what Paul longs to teach the Philippian church. This is what he longs for believers to understand that how we live is meant to be In light of what Christ has done. In a manner that is worthy of the gospel that we've received as believers. What does that mean? What does that look like? That stand firm language is a huge part of it. Because you look into verse 27 and all the way through 29, you're going to see these things emerge. And one of the first things that Paul says is to stand firm. That means to stand in, to rest in, to trust in, to truly believe in what Christ has done. The good news of the gospel, the effectual work of Jesus, what Jesus has done. Paul says to stand firm. So this is him restating his desire for these believers that at the the end of this one section and the beginning of another, before he describes anything practical, how to live, the things to do, before he says, hey, this is how to live, this is what you do, he puts it in this context, he puts it in this place, he says... Stand firm. All of these things that you're going to do, that I'm commanding you to do, instructing you to do, these are not things that you do in order to gain standing. You already have standing in Christ Jesus. Now you can live in this way in response to what he's done. This is the beauty of the gospel. Not us doing these things to get to God, but doing these things out of love for the one who loves us. Who we could not be any more loved than we are right now. Now we get the opportunity to live in light of that love. He does this also with family language. Look at what Paul says. He says, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, he calls them his beloved. This is a beautiful picture of how radically the gospel has transformed Paul's life. That this would be his joy, that this would be his crown. That other believers, people that he's in community with, recognize and realize that Christ has made them his own. This is his deepest joy to see others continue to live in the reality of the faith. And he talks with language that is corporate. Because quite often when we read the scriptures and we look at things that are commands to us, that are mandates to us, things that are instruction for us, 
in a, in a Western individualized world, we distill these things in such a way that says, okay, I'm going to go do these things. I've got to go live in this way. I need to be better. I need to improve. I need to take on some discipline and some self-mastery. This is about me and what I can control. But here's what you've got to understand. From the outset of this passage, Paul is using not you individual language, but you plural language. This is the Greekest y'all there has ever been. All right? He's saying this for everyone. He's talking to them corporately. He's saying this Christian life, the way that you are to live, is not just merely you individually doing this. No, you're a part of the whole. In so many ways, Paul's inviting these believers again and again and again to see that they are a part truly of a body. That this is not poetry or metaphor that we find in 1 Corinthians 12, but this is reality. That God has drawn us into the body truly of Christ and that the way that we live the gospel is in community with one another. So gospel belief draws us into gospel life that we live in the reality of the gospel to each other. And there's this beautiful picture of what life in the gospel looks like through this adverse situation that we find happening in Philippi. There are these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, and they didn't win the name lottery. I think that's pretty easy to see. All right? I don't, I, I, I don't see these as like really standing out well on monogrammed clothes. But the, here's the thing. Paul recognizes that there is a struggle, that there's something happening relationally here that's not right. That these two ladies are at odds. And it's actually affecting the church in Philippi in a pretty distinct way. Now, here's what he says. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. A simple sentence on the surface, but there's so much more here. First, that word for entreat is not merely an invitation. It's not, hey, I, I invite you and I invite you to agree in the Lord. It's much more than that because the word that Paul uses, it means a personal call and because of his closeness with them. So this is him appealing in the deepest way. He's saying, look, Euodia, you know that we have labored together in the gospel and you know that I love you as my sister. So I invite you to agree. Syntyche, you know that we've labored together in the gospel. I love you. We're close. I entreat you, I invite you to agree. What's the issue that's at play here? Here's the challenge. We don't know. Historically, it could be a number of things, right? One argument is perhaps that these ladies might have been a part of two different house churches. And in a very cultural way may have been caught up into a world in which there would be some sort of rivalry between them. This is possible. Things like this happened in this day, but we don't know for sure. The main thing that we can draw from this is this, that these women were of prominence societally and that they had influence in the church at Philippi. The main thing that they needed was to be unified. And this is how we know this. That phrase that Paul uses, he says, to agree in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I've been a part of, I've got small children at home, so I, I help solve arguments all the time. But quite often, as we mature, as we become adults, in our rational minds, we think we know how to solve an argument. And it's this. All right, well, we just got to find out who's right. 
One person's right and one person's wrong. Because if there's a problem, then there's a solution. And it's obviously not both of these things. But I want you to see the gentleness, the care with which Paul approaches this. He does not, one, pick a side. And he does not say, agree with me. In fact, he draws them out of whatever thing is bothering them, whatever contentiousness they have with one another. He draws them out of that and into the greater truth, the greater reality, that they're to agree in the Lord. That unity in Christ is infinitely more important than any preference that we have. Paul is inviting them into something really beautiful. He's inviting them in the opportunity to live in humility. To humbly recognize that with someone with whom we have a disagreement, we are much more alike than we are different. If you are in Christ, we are so much more alike than we could ever be different. Why would any sort of preference that we have or any sort of thing that that we would divide ourselves over, even with the best of intentions, how could that mar, how could that crush, how could that change, how could that destroy or tamper with or taint the relationship we have with one another because Christ has made us his own? So much so that my identity is not in me and your identity is not in you. We've been crucified with Christ. So much so that this is how Paul would describe the Christian life in Galatians. That we no longer live. But it's Christ that lives in us. The life we live in the body, we live by faith in Jesus Christ. Who loved us. Who made us his own. Who gave himself for us. Our identity is so drawn to seeing the reality of who we are in Jesus. That we can forget about ourselves. We have the freedom to forget about ourselves and agree in the Lord. It requires humility. And Paul writes this with emphasis. He wants the believers in Philippi to understand this. The Spirit longs for believers like you and I to understand this. That our unity reveals the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the grace of God. And that when we are unified together... The world is confronted with something that is so beyond understanding, that is so mysterious, but they can't help but not only to admire it, but to desire it. To see that people that are different on the outside could love one another. Paul longs for this humility. He describes these ladies in this way. Ones who have labored side by side with him in the gospel. So they are leaders in the church by the example of their faith and life. In so many ways, these women of prominence have influence in the church at Philippi. Now, we got to understand they're not the only leaders there. And in so many ways, Paul's described the outline functionally of what the leadership in the church looks like, even back to chapter 1 and verse 1 with the elders and those who are deacons. And though these ladies are not mentioned as a part of that, they are a part of gospel leadership and gospel influence in the church. And Paul calls on this one true companion who's not named, as well as Clement and other workers, to really help them resolve this issue. The picture that we're given is that believers are meant to help bring unity through, humi- through humility in Christ. Here's what I do when I see an argument. And I don't know if you're like me. I'm not a crazy confrontational person. But when I see people arguing, I just do this. Right? I want to back away. I don't want to be a part of that, and I want them to fix whatever they got going on over there. 
that I don't want to get in it and, and be a part of one side or the other side. A lot of us are like that. Now, some of you like confrontation, and you're nuts. But a lot of us just want to leave that alone, right? But here's the reality. This is a beautiful picture of what the church is called to. When we see disunity, we're drawn into that. God gives us the opportunity. We're entreated to come into that place and in a humble way help these believers that are at odds with one another recognize the greatest truth. That their identity is bound up in Christ, that they belong to him. And this thing that they're fighting for, quite honestly, means so much less than the fact that Christ has loved them and made him his own. So when we see confrontation, when we see frustration in the church, and this is, you guys aren't going to believe this, but you know people in our church get mad at each other? Like really mad at each other. Man, we've got the opportunity when we see these things, when we see discord, when we see disunity, to step in, not as a know-it-all, but as somebody who's humble and says, look, look at what Christ has done for us. Look at what Jesus has done for us. Look at what the gospel means for us. That now we live in its reality together in community. Man, can we agree in the Lord Can we agree in the Lord and let that inform our life and all things? This is an incredible opportunity that Paul places before the Philippian church and for us as well. And then look at the way Paul describes these people. Whose names are in the book of life. It's referring to everlasting life. This is what he's saying. This is why you can humbly seek unity. Man, what's the motivation for me to humbly seek unity? Man, our citizenship... My identity is not in this Roman world. It's not in this culture. My identity is in the fact that, man, I'm in Christ. So much so that my citizenship is much more than here. For you and I, that means we're more than Alabamians. We're more than Americans. Infinitely more. And that our citizenship is truly otherworldly. That we are citizens of heaven. Above all, because Christ is there and we are in him. This is motivation for these believers here and for us as well to seek unity because we are so much more together in Christ than we are apart in our flesh. All right, looking at verse 4, Paul says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So it's funny how... Whenever you look through the scriptures and you see people at odds with one another, you see difficulties, you see adversity... Look around and pretty quickly you're going to realize that the next charge, the next thing that we're commanded to do, that we're instructed to do, is to have joy. How do you get to that place? Because if I'm looking at this situation, have joy just seems like something that's impossible. Well, just you guys have a lot of problems, so have joy. That feels like it works, right? Anybody? Anybody? What is Paul saying? Look at what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. He does not say rejoice in your circumstances always. There's a ministry of gentleness that Paul is a part of here. And he's saying, look, I I get it. I understand that not every moment is easy. But this is what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Why is that possible? Why is he so emphatic to say it again? Because joy is not temporal. Joy is eternal. 
It's not like a happiness. It's not like a thing that comes and goes. Joy is eternal. And here's the thing that's really, really important. Paul is talking about a Christian habit or discipline here. He is not sheerly talking about emotion. Because when you and I think of joy, we typically think of an emotion. Something that's elicited when we find contentment or happiness. Perhaps even more sustained than just a moment of happiness that's fleeting, but a long-lasting one. Paul's not saying that. While emotion can be part of what he's talking about, he's actually talking about the Christian habit or discipline. This is a command that he's given in a plural way to this group of believers because the Lord is not only the source of the joy, he's the object of our joy. And if Christ is the object of our joy... And Christ is ruling and reigning with all providence, with all sovereignty, with all power, with all authority. So much so that he has brought us back from the dead. He has redeemed us. In what world am I not to be joyful? How do we do this? How can I be joyful? How can I practice that as a habit or a discipline? Here's how, and it's why we say it and we say it and we say it emphatically again and again and again. Believe in the gospel. If you and I will believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we will not just awaken and begin to think thoughts about all the things that are happening in our world, but if we will be confronted again and again and we'll preach ourselves the gospel, We would wake up and and start to tell ourselves, when you wake up in the morning, truly this. God's mercies are new, and this is the greatest of them all. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. That's how he demonstrated his love for me. We can openly admit that we're broken and that we were sinful, and that we were enemies of the Lord, and yet through Christ... He's made a way for us to have peace with God. When I preach that truth to myself, when I preach the truth of Scripture, when I open God's Word to read the truth of Scripture, when I have conversation with brothers and sisters, and I'm reminded of that truth for them, joy isn't just something I feel, it's something I know. And that habitual habit of hearing the truth will train my heart for me to understand that which is real. And so now these circumstances can't rob me of the truth that Christ has made me his own. It can't take it from me. And we get the opportunity to live in that. How do I get to that place? Believe the gospel, brother and sister. Preach it to yourself Daily, surround yourselves with people that preach it to you. Open the scriptures and see the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And watch your life be transformed into something joyful. All right, looking at verse 5. Paul says this. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, nothing is more reasonable than the average Christian. Am I right? Reasonable. What does that mean? What does it mean to be reasonable? Here's what it actually means. It means... In so many ways, gentleness. So you could read it like this. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. We're gentle to others because God has dealt with us generously, with us graciously. This is the gospel belief that Paul is longing for these believers to have in mind. That God has dealt with you graciously and generously. So 
much so that it's going to transform your life. And he shows them how. He says, the Lord is at hand. And that really connects, that phrase really connects with verse 6. So read it in this way. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Here's what the Lord is at hand means. It means the Lord is near. So in so many ways, Paul is saying what Psalm 145, 18 would say. The Lord is near to those who call on him. And this is evidenced by the life of prayer. Because Paul gives, in the most succinct way, the remedy for anxiety. I want you to think about how profound that statement is. The remedy for anxiety. Because a number of us understand anxiety. We live in an anxious age. And the church at Philippi, these people had something to be anxious about. There is this Roman world in which they live in that is presenting them with animosity for this reason. Not because they proclaim Jesus, but because they proclaim Christ alone. It is Jesus alone. The Roman world said, the Roman government said, hey, look, you want to love Jesus? That's fine. You got to worship the emperor too. All right? You can worship any and everything you want to as long as you submit to worshiping the emperor, revering the emperor. But for the believer who says, no, it is Christ alone. Christ is Lord of all. Not not Caesar or Augustus. Christ is Lord of all. That person, in a human way, would be under anxiousness, would be under anxiety, would feel danger because their life was at stake. But Paul says, look, don't be anxious, which sounds so trite, And so simple that it can't be true. What's the depth? What's the meaning behind this? This is it. Prayer is the place where we recognize, when we we bend our knee, when when we bow our head, and more than that, more than a human posture, when we yield our hearts to the Father in prayer, this is what's happening. In humility, we're recognizing what God has done. And we get the opportunity to give him our cares and concerns so much so that they are not ours to bear, but his. Cast your cares upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. So these cares, these burdens, these things that I, that I bear, if I go to the Lord and I pray, these things are now his. These things are his to bear. And the God who is near to us is greater than any anxiety-inducing problem or issue that we face. This is the beauty of the humility of the life of prayer. Is in these moments when we come to pray truly in our heart of hearts that we get to recognize that we are not in control. That we couldn't even affect the things that are causing us anxiety if we wanted to. But yet God is, and he loves us. This should draw us as believers to pray, because here's what happens. When we pray with thanksgiving, because this is what Paul says we do, we pray, we make our requests known, we ask in supplication, we ask for the things that we need, but we do so in thanksgiving. We're humbly ushered into the understanding that the blessing of the gospel is more than anything that we face. What we've been given in Christ is more. And then this language that's really echoed here that that we heard this morning, 
from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, that Jesus would say, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened. What do these things mean? Here's what it means. That when we go to the Lord in prayer, we're being transformed. When we recognize the beauty of what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our desires begin to be shaped so much so that we're able to ask in accordance with God's will for these things to be done. And then we get this, and look what verse 7 says. This thing that is so desirous of all of us, and so often we really want to know what does it mean, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amazing things are happening here, deep truths for us to understand. One, this language, surpassing all understanding, it means far exceeding. And we sang it this morning, joy and chaos, a peace that makes no sense. How can we... How can we cling to that? How can we cling to something that, quote-unquote, does not make sense? This is what Paul is saying, and he's inviting us into the mystery of the gospel here because this is beyond our understanding, our comprehension. This is the work, truly, of the Holy Spirit, that it's beyond our rational ability even to grasp fully the very peace of God that we long for. So this is recognition of peace that's beyond our own rationale. And you know this and you've experienced this because I've also watched you sing this and profess with faith. When we sing a song like Waymaker, you sing, and I've seen so many of you sing with with power, with tears in your eyes, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Now that doesn't make sense because there's nothing there to see. Where is the evidence Well, when you saw these things come to fruition, you knew that God was working the entire time. You knew that. But in that moment, understand this. That's beyond rationale. That's beyond comprehension. And Paul wants to battle this in the life of his people. Uh, This is Bonnie B. Thurston. She's a theologian, a writer, uh, specifically does some amazing work in Philippians uh, and Philemon as well. This is what she says that, that Paul is really getting to the heart of here. This idea of this surpassing peace with God is this. This phrase for Paul is a subtle reminder for us not to be prisoners of the enlightenment, not to assume that rationality is the only way of knowing. That mistake stunts the possibility of many kinds of growth of the interior life. Here's what she's saying, that we cannot grow and mature, which is Paul, what Paul longs for, for these believers. We can't grow and mature in our life if we think that reason is the only thing that's to be trusted. She uses this phrase, the age of enlightenment, and I think historically we could understand that that's the 17th and 18th centuries in many ways, Descartes among others. But listen, what, what the society that Paul is writing to, this group of people at Philippi, this Greco-Roman world reveres above all things virtue and thought, philosophy. The philosophers, these Stoics, these are the people that were revered. The Ciceros, the Aristotles, these people. And Paul's saying, don't be drawn into the world in which you live, this earthly world that says, if you can't explain it, if you can't see it with your own eyes, then it is not true, it's not real. So much so that this is the power and the grandeur of the peace of God. Listen to me. By God's grace, hear this. Truly. If you could grasp all of this, it would not be good enough. 
if I could understand fully the peace of God now in the flesh, in this temporal body, there's got to be more. It's got to be beyond what we are. And so this is what Paul is saying, that the Lord will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He'll protect us from our worry, from our concerns, as we rest in a peace that is greater than we can even comprehend. That it is more, not only than we can see, but perhaps than we can even imagine. And Paul uses this really powerful language. Look into what he says. He says it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This word guarded, it means protected. And there's two really important elements to this. The first one is this. It's a future tense word. So when Paul says your mind is guarded, it's not just this moment. And this is where the elimination of anxiety and worry and fears and all the things that could assuade us and cause us to not trust the Lord. This is where those things can be diminished. Hear this and see this. This is a future tense word because this is a promise that is certain. Paul is not resting on the certainty of one moment, but he's resting on the surety of the finished work of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because it is finished, truly, from the lips of our Savior, it is finished because of what Christ has done. We can have certainty in the peace that we have with God. What does that peace look like? Here's what it looks like. Paul would write to the church in Rome, and he would say this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. This is peace, that we would understand it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Look at this. Thanks be to God for this. We've been justified by faith. Faith is a gift that God has given us. And now as a result, we have peace with God because of what Christ has done. This transcends any moment. Why? Because Christ is alive. Because Christ is reigning. He is our very peace. And Paul uses this language in a military sense as well. Uh, because that's what this word guarded means. It's a military word for guarding. And here's the amazing thing. If, if someone lived in Rome at the time, and you might be familiar with this historically, but these people in Philippi, in this little area that, that's, that's governed by Rome, they would be familiar with something called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the Roman peace. But here's the thing about earthly peace. Rome was this incredible world power, this incredible empire, and to the outsider or someone that's just a part of the culture or coming up in the culture, it looked in so many ways like a peaceful place. Societally, everyone's getting along. Things are happening. Commerce is happening. Business is booming. This world looks incredible and it's drawn people into the idea of, man, I want to be a citizen of this. I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. But here's the reality. The Roman peace was such that it was executed by violence and terror and tyranny. So everyone was at peace because if you got out of line, someone would help keep the peace in a violent, militaristic way. So when Paul uses this language, he's using military language that these people in Philippi would understand that they would get. But here's what he's ultimately saying. He's saying this is no peace at all. The real peace is such that no matter the circumstance that you find yourself in, you are Christ and he is yours. 
This is the source of your peace, not the external world around you that you see that looks peaceful. No, it is the peace that can reign in your hearts through Christ. And then in a way that would connect with his readers and hearers at the church at Philippi in this philosophical world that they lived in, Paul does this thing in verse 8 where he makes this list. And this is really common in letters and writings at this time to make a list of virtues, a list of things that were admirable, a list of things that people aspired to. And this was done for the sake of self-mastery. So in the Greco these guys in the Greco-Roman world in so many ways invented self-help. Okay, the masters of it. And they said, here's how we're going to do it. It's going to be through thought and it's going to be through mastering ourselves. And what Paul does is he takes this idea and he inverts it and he takes this giant list of these admirable things. And he says, look, this is not about becoming better. It's about being humble and dependent upon Christ. Christian ethics are about becoming more than what we are, but not by what we do out of what Jesus has done in us. So what's more pure than the sinless Jesus or lovely than the God who gives his son for us or commendable than the works of Jesus or excellent than the life of Jesus? What's more worthy of praise than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? This is what Paul draws his believers to think on. These people that are, that are in the faith with him. And this word think means to carefully take into account, to scrutinize all things. To really look at the things and say, look, What are the things worth thinking on? In light of all that Christ has done for me, what should I think on? Things that are holy, things that are beautiful, things that are lovely. And look into verse 9 as we close. What we've learned, the believers at Philippi, what they've learned and received and heard and they saw in Paul, they were to practice these things. And he uses this phrase, and the God of peace will be with you. He can say this confidently because he knows that God's peace, Jesus himself, is in them. And it's this. If they follow the mindset of Christ and this life in humility, they can confidently rest that God and his peace are not only in them, but they're with him. So it's about practicing. It's about living these things. And so as our team comes to lead us as we close in worship and response, And this is practical gospel humility, that we would be humble enough to seek unity with each other, that we would be humble enough to spend time in prayer. And in doing so, we'd be awakened to the fact that any anxiety that we have can be alleviated, not in a moment of feeling, where I don't feel it anymore, but hear this, that the reality is I am at peace because God is at peace with me through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And when I go to pray and I bow my heart to him, I get to experience that truth. We get to humbly experience peace beyond understanding. Humbly live the faith that we've received. So this morning, we have an opportunity to respond truly together. And it might be this. There might be someone in our church that's a part of our body. And you might say, look, I'm just not in the best place with that person. It might not happen in this room, in this moment, but this would be my gospel encouragement to you would be to go find restoration. Go pursue unity as a response today to what God has done in the gospel. Go Literally, go forgive or go ask for forgiveness or go confess hurt and say, I want to forgive you, 
because I'm struggling here? I mean, could we do that with one another? Because we're more alike than we are different because we're Christ. That defines us. He's made us his own. This morning, you might just want to pray. And you might want to ask God to, in the midst of this prayer, awaken your heart to the reality that he is greater. His love is more than any anxiety or pain or frustration that you face. This morning, you might leave this place saying, look, I need to practice these things. I need to go live out this gospel in this community. So however you want to respond this morning, sitting, thinking on things that are pure, trustworthy, true, singing, standing, sitting, coming and receiving prayer, whatever this looks like, I urge you to, to, to respond in these moments now. And we get to sing this morning of the provision of God for us in Christ. So let's do that now. Let's sing and worship today. Chosen, I know who I am. I know what you've spoken. 